Hey everybody, thanks for listening to this episode of My First Sketch. I'm Josh Hyam. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to the show, Apple Podcast, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast, really. It'd be really cool if you rate it five stars and leave a review on whatever platform you choose. Like the podcast on Facebook, facebook.com slash myfirstsketch. Twitter is at myfirstsketch. Head to myfirstsketch.com. Any questions, thoughts, recommendations, feel free to email me at josh at myfirstsketch.com, and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. Happy 2020, everybody. With the new year comes the anticipation of the 2020 Philly Sketch Fest, which will take place June 3rd through the 7th. Submissions are open for the live events and for the film festival, and you can find all that information at the updated phillysketchfest.com. Today's guest is Mike Robertson, currently a member of Marvin Berry out of Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Marvin Berry is heading to SF Sketchfest this week with two shows on January 23rd. Mike's first sketch is called Three Babies Conversing, and it takes place inside a womb. Mike reads the roles of Wilbur and Glenn. I read the roles of Balthazar and Sammy the Sperm. So let's go to the sketch. Three Babies Conversing. Scene starts with two babies floating around in the womb. They are conversing with each other. So as I was saying, I was reading up on quantum physics the other day. Oh, really? Go on. Well, everyone knows that the speed of light is constant for any one object, regardless of their relative speed in a given quantum state. This, of course, being labeled by a quantum number in transformation law. Of course. (laughs) Yes, well, anyway, I was experimenting with what would happen if n equaled 1.0978 instead of 1. Interesting. This offsets the Lorentz invariation of general relativity for the n being greater than the one vacuum structure. I never considered what would happen if what n equaled was slightly changed. I guess I just took all this physics for granted. So it happened. Well, so far my results are inconclusive. You see, I'm trying to find the exact point where black holes cease to be created because of the principle. Well, you have to remember the singularities may not occur due to the possibility of emission of large amounts of matter. Apparent quantum paradoxes can be resolved using this level of covariance. Yeah, I know, I know. I say, what do you take me for? Sorry, it's just that when Glenn was talking to me about quantum physics last week, he completely forgot about what effect large amounts of matter can have. Glenn always says that matter doesn't matter to him. He prefers infinite densities over anything else. Quantum Lorentz contraction? Yeah, what a simpleton. Glenn floats in. Did somebody mention quantum Lorentz contraction? Salutations, Glenn. Hello, Glenn. How are you today? Sufficient, although my umbilical cord is acting funny. I'm starving. Mine's acting fine. What about you, Wilbur? Yep, working great. Interesting. Well, I'm considering dissecting it. It's been giving me a little trouble recently. Frankly, I'm feeling malnourished. That makes sense, but watch what you do. Those things aren't reinforced with thermoset or thermoplastic resins, you know. Yes, I know. Don't worry about it. I know what I'm doing. Don't tell me what to do he's not telling you what to do you're allowed to make your own choices in life we're not restricting you 
Oh, so now you're getting all existential on me, are you? No. And why are you babbling about thermoset and thermoplastic resins? What are you, some post-fetal chemist? No, I was just trying to... Listen here, you dunderpate. I know what goes on when I'm not around. I know what is... As he's talking, a sperm comes in. Hey guys, what's up? Who are you? I'm Sammy. Can you guys tell me which way to the fallopian tubes? Oh, great. Those two are at it again. Good God. Um, okay. Could you tell me which way it is? I want to fertilize an egg soon. I'm kind of busy. Down that way. That should take you to the fallopian tubes, which will also take you to the ovaries. Thanks! The sperm goes off on his way. My word, what an oaf. The lights fade to black. Lights up on Glenn and Wilbur floating around. Balthazar comes in reading a paper. I say, I'm glad the whole Elian Gazan's thing is over. It was such an eyesore in these newspapers, you know? I mean, a guy who wants to check how his stocks are doing and not have to deal with punks like that staring back at you? Here, here. Sammy comes in covered in a white sheet. Hey guys, what's up? How's it hanging? What on earth is that you're covered with? It's an amniotic sack. It's hard to walk around, you know. Well, I say it looks horrendous. Hey, I'm not even a full-fledged fetus yet. Don't judge me. Suddenly... Glenn's umbilical cord starts acting up. Hey, this thing is starting to work. Mmm, pudding. Chocolate pudding. Hey, I, I taste it too. Glenn's umbilical cord bursts and fillet and fluid spills everywhere. Hey, w- what's going on? Tries to catch the fluid in his mouth. Hey, my, my food and my oxygen. He can taste it. Ah, uh, I forgot that my waist goes through this thing too. Suddenly, a bright light appears on the side of the stage. The babies shield their eyes. Well, it looks like it's my time to go. I'll see you on the other side, boys. What's happening? Is he dying? It's actually quite the opposite. Bye, Glenn. What are you talking about? Hey, who's that face looking as though through that tiny hole? Ah, Sammy, you've a lot to learn. Whoa, look at the size of that hand. Glenn starts floating off stage quicker and quicker. Okay, better start crying soon. Hey, I guess it'll just be you and me now, old chap. Yes, but someday it'll be our turn. And predecessors to come! This old wench never stops grinding! Sammy passed the wall. The end. Hey, Mike. Hello. Alright, so tell me about three babies conversing. Well, so when I was uh, just got out of high school, like literally graduated high school the summer, uh, right after we, me and a whole bunch of my best friends from high school started a little sketch comedy troupe, and we were going to do a uh, a show at this thing called the Interplay. We lived in Fort McMurray, Alberta, like far north Alberta, Canada, and Interplay is basically like a fringe festival. Yeah, uh, a really small one, but a French festival for just like that one city. So we put together a sketch comedy review of like, uh, it was supposed to be 45 minutes. Our first night we went over to, and our show was like an hour. You know, we were all 17, 18. We had never done like a full sketch comedy thing before. So yeah, this was literally my first sketch, like something that I wrote many, many years ago. Uh, this was in the summer of 2001. So this was pre 9-11. Yeah, I mean, the Ilian Gonzalez, I mean, reference. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah that kind of pretty nicely. 
<laughs> yeah, that that dates it uh, very very explicitly. So I didn't yeah. realize that I didn't realize that that story made a big deal up there in Canada too. Oh yeah, no, everything that happens in the states you hear about in in the in Canada pretty much. <laughs> if it's like a big story in the states, it's just as big up in the up in Canada. Yeah, regional stuff, not as much, but yeah, the Alien Gonzalez thing was all over the news. I mean, I was. When I was in grade seven, we watched the OJ trial. We like stopped class to watch the OJ trial. So I think that was, was it. Uh, that was a weird thing, but you know we had been following it all the way up, you know, all through my grade six year. So I think in fifth grade we stopped to watch the verdict or something for sure. Yeah, I don't think we watched the whole thing, but it was definitely yeah big for us too. Um, yeah, so uh, you graduate high school. What what's the why put together a sketch comedy show? Um, well, we were all on the improv team, um, so we all did improv uh, and sketch, you know, as most people in the improv and sketch community kind of knows, like there's sometimes there's a little bit of overlap between those two things. Also, like growing up, I was really into Kids in the Hall. I was really into Monty Python, Saturday Night Live. Like I watched these things every single week. It was on Monty Python was on TV in Canada every single day of the week. Mm-hmm. So I'd watch it right after school. Um, and Kids in the Hall was on every week, uh, right after Saturday Night Live. We played it on CBC, and I got to see it when, like, a lot of those when they originally aired, which was pretty sweet. But um, I'm really, really, really dating myself. Like, how old I? Am. That's that's fine. Um, so, oh, yeah. is this the the competitive improv thing that yes, apparently you guys have in Alberta? Improv. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, we my high school team was like one of the. The, the big teams during that era, I guess we like won that year. So this was like right after our graduating class. Uh, me and my improv buddies were like, let's uh, do sketch comedy. See how that goes. I'm still totally baffled by this whole high school improv thing. Like I think, oh, really? I think every single member of Ma- Marvin Berry that I've talked to, which I think you're the last one. Um, yes, I'm the last and then one. even hanging out when you guys came to Philly that year, I was still like competitive high school improv feels yeah, so weird to me but it's it's the only world i knew for the longest time mm. and then I, now that i've had like a lot of time away from that it seems kind of strange <laughs> but but uh yeah they just uh cbc up in canada actually just started a tv show or it might just be a web only thing but they basically are doing like a documentary about that okay following the teams and making it almost like a quasi reality show hmm. it's just i i don't know it's I, there's there's a part of me that's obviously jealous and I wish I kind of had that kind of thing because when I was in high school, like that was the height of like the American whose lines it anyway, yeah. like where that's what everyone thought improv was. And that's all they really knew. Like real, like real Americans that weren't in LA, Chicago, New York, like that was the big thing. And then the comedy yeah. sports started really trickling in. We got one in, in Philadelphia when I was in high school. I very distinctly oh, yeah, like I very distinctly remember like my high school newspaper, one of the kids that wrote for it went to a comedy sports thing and was like wrote a review for our newspaper. Mm-hmm. Which I like I didn't know it existed until then. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. I didn't go, but like I don't know. It just there's a part of me that really that kind of wishes that there was like a high school improv for us. Yeah, I mean, even uh, here in Alberta, we have like a, I mean, the other guys probably talked about it. I don't remember all of their podcasts, 
that they did with you. Me neither. They, uh, there is, there's a, um, there's even junior high and our improv company here does like a kid's thing. So I was at a show recently where the kids were, I don't know, 10, oh, maybe geez. younger. So, and they were pretty good. Some of them. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, it makes sense. The younger you are, like kids just are imaginative. So yeah, for sure. But, uh, but the high school thing is to like, I know that we want to talk about the sketches, but the high school thing is pretty wild. Cause like when we did it, uh, imagine being like 17, 16, 18, whatever. And you're performing, uh, with your high school improv team in, uh, to a packed theater of like 600 people. Like that's not an experience you get that much at that age. You know, you never really kind of have the stakes be that high, yeah. but, uh, it really like ages you in terms of, or, uh, you definitely, I don't mean ages. It really uh, helps you grow, I think, like really, really fast. Not only as a performer, but also just as like a, a person. You like it really, just that kind of, it feels like you're doing something super professional, but and, you know, you're looking back, it's just like, oh, that was just a high school tournament. But at the time, it's just like, this is like the best moment of my life. Yeah, my nephew's getting into like high school theater and he's been doing it a couple of years. And he like, after his last show, he was really talking about like this like award ceremony. Apparently there's like a Philadelphia suburban regional awards for like high school dramas. And I was just like, oh, yeah. yeah, don't worry about that. Like don't just do have fun. It's high school drama, but it's, it's musical, but it's probably like just like the, his whole entire world. And, oh, it's, it's a good chunk of it for sure. Like, but yeah. don't worry about the awards. That's all I'm saying. Um, cause he, apparently he stole the show in the last, in the last musical that they did for the school so he's oh, he's nice. super into it now um yes yeah, so, hey congrats buddy <laughs> how was so how did this first show go you mentioned you guys went over time because you first time you didn't really know how to time out the show like how was the response to it otherwise well uh the show went pretty good a bunch of the most of our sketches like landed or hit really hard the crowd up in Fort McMurray is very supportive. Like at the time they had a really, really like strangely bustling art scene. Mm -hmm. um, There's a lot of really talented musicians, a lot of talented uh, theater people. So yeah, we like sold out all of our shows, which was not really hard to do at that interplay thing back then. Um, and yeah, I think the shows went really well. This sketch we actually never did perform live. Okay. Because, um, it was as you have read it from the stage directions. It was very complicated. I, that, uh, that was a eventual um, question: is how did this look on stage? Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, we had we had bald caps, we had nude suits, we had all of these things, but it's just like it was too much memorizing. As you saw, the words are just yeah. like kind of word salad at the beginning, yeah. and uh, yeah, just a lot of like awkward props. It's also just kind of like way longer than it needs to be. So we just cut that one. So this was, this is the only time it's ever been performed. Actually. Nice. I love having those. Yeah. So, uh, they cut this one. Uh, we, we cut this one, but we still went over time. So <laughs> that really goes to show how, like how well planned our thing was. It went so over time that the, the stand up comedian who was coming after us, like swore at us and got really, really angry and like threatened to like have our show canceled and stuff as they would. Yeah. But whatever we, we, we did good the next two days. So. <laughs> but you have to cut, other stuff like between like the next couple of days or just 
Yeah, I think we I think we cut one or two sketches, but they were all really they were all really dumb. So there was nothing like super super important to the structure of the show. There was no load bearing yeah. sketches. So all right, you mentioned growing up. Uh, do you have like an early like and watching you know Monty Python and Kids in the Hall and SNL? Do you have an earliest memory of comedy? I mean, let's see. Uh, yeah, probably my first like earliest memories of like comedy. Uh, in terms of pop culture, maybe is like America's funniest home videos, or dare I say, America's funniest people. Mm-hmm. So, like, I I used to watch uh, just TV a lot as a kid. I used to watch a lot of sitcoms too. So, my we had t- uh, TBS, which back then I think was just a rerun yeah, station. Yeah, for the most part. And you had to get a special cable box to watch it. Uh, so I watched sitcoms like pretty much all summer. When we had this cable box, we did it during the summer. Like, do you have like uh, like bigger memories of American sitcoms or of Canadian stuff? Oh, there was no. There's not really any Canadian sitcoms I can even think about. Like, I think, yeah, uh, I think I don't even know. <laughs> what, <laughs> I don't even know one from that from like the the late '80s, early '90s. Um, I feel like people would say the Beachcombers. I'm not even sure if that's Canadian. Oh, I don't even know like what that, that is. I've never heard of that one. Okay, that's probably a Canadian <laughs> one then, if you've never heard of it. Like, I think that was one of the only Canadian sitcoms. I'm sure that there was one. I used to watch, like, Road to Avonlea and, yeah. like, Anne of Green Gable yeah. type stuff, like the Canadian programming that they did have on CBC. But, yeah, I don't think there was a heck of a lot of, like... Uh, what about British? Things. We had a lot of... Um, it was... No. No, because all the British shows look boring, like, Are You yeah. Being Served? And uh, Absolutely Fabulous. I was just like, I can't connect to yeah. this. Monty Python was like the first like British thing where I was like, oh, I think British humor is better. But yeah, our one PBS station here had like a Saturday night like British comedy night, and I I distinctly remember it. And until like the the Office came in like 2002 for us, until that happened, I didn't understand any of it. Like, are you being yeah. served? Keeping up appearances? Um, even Red Dwarf made no sense to me. And Mighty Python, yeah. it took me forever to really latch on to. I think Mr. Bean also is a really yeah. Mr. Bean would have been another big one for me for sure. That like I, I think I saw uh, the first time I saw Mr. Bean was in a short film before Hot Shots Part Deux. I think oh interesting. They played a Mr. Bean short where he met the Queen. Which that sound is that like where he's just in the lineup? So he yeah. just, so they just took yeah. a little snippet from one of the TV episodes. Then it sounds like. I think so, yeah. Well, it was really polished looking. It was filmed oh, really maybe. nicely. So I think it was filmed on like 35 millimeter instead of like whatever they shoot the TV show on. Hmm. So. But yeah, that was, I think, my first exposure to Mr. Bean and it was just like mind blowing. Yeah, I think it's so bizarre to me of like how British um, TV structured compared to American because like American, you do like 22, 24 episodes a year for 15 years or, you know, whatever it is like. There's 200 and something episodes of Friends, like 100 and something of Seinfeld, but there's legitimately only like 15 or 16 Mr. Beans. Like, that's it. Yeah. It's weird because it feels like there's a million of them, but it's, just it's, never it's so crazy. And then becomes a like, and Mr. Beans, like one of the most popular things worldwide because it's basically a silent film that doesn't need language really to, to do what it's doing. Yeah. Have you heard of Just for Laughs Gags? Mm-hmm. Is that, that I, I mean, I think I've heard of it. it. I don't know how much it's aired. 
here? Is that like the prank show kind of version? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, um, it's as from what I understand, it's Canada's biggest comedy export at the Hmm. moment. Uh, just because it's like, uh, it's made in Quebec and it's a mostly silent, um, show where people just people on the street get pranked. It's hidden camera style stuff. Uh, but it's like with a very kind of, I don't know, Quebecois, (laughs) I guess, angle to it. I don't know what that means even. I was about to say, is there a massive difference uh, between Quebecois and, well, the rest of Canada's comedy? Um, I couldn't tell you because I don't understand what they're saying. (laughs) But uh, I did, I did work on a Just for Laughs uh, stand-up show here in town. uh, And it was all in French, so I didn't understand really what they were saying half the time like i know a little bit of french but not enough to get that and i think there's a lot of like deep cultural references to quebecois culture so uh the audience was eating it up though and it seemed alien to me even though it's from my own country yeah this is a weird thing of having you know a giant chunk of your country speaking an entirely different language and all that stuff like i'm sure like and well, the, all the political things that comes with it, like definitely, I understand, but has to be different for you know the pop culture aspect itself. Yeah, well, we've we've had like the separatist undertones in our country with Quebec for a long time. I love Quebec; I think it's awesome. But uh, yeah, that's like th- that whole politics has been around since kind of I don't even remember. I remember growing up in the '90s and they had a mm. referendum on it and stuff, but. Um, the Quebecois film industry is also wild because they make a lot of really, really awesome movies and a lot of people from Quebec go and watch them, <laughs> which is not true of the English speaking film industry. Yeah. It, it's so they like make a huge percentage of their like box office from their own regional films, which is pretty sweet. It feels like the whole um, industry in Canada is such a crapshoot. Like I feel like there, there's there's certain uh, things yeah, that like like and this is such an american centric thing to say but like i feel like the the token of success for canadian pop culture like music like tv or, or movies is when it gets imported down to america yeah i mean that makes sense there's so many people like, down there like california has more people than canada maybe even twice like, as many but people. when you have you know the shows like I remember again with the, the whole PBS thing. Um, oh, I'm blanking on his name now. Shoot, the, the um, Mercer, Rick Mercer. Oh yeah. Um, I couldn't think of his first name for a minute. Uh, Rick Mercer had that. Uh, it was called Made in Canada up there, but it became oh, the industry right. down here, where it was like a, a satire of an and an, a production company, like where right. they're actually making fun of their own production company half the time. I remember seeing it and loving it, but that was it. Like that was my, like that was the extent of my Canadian pop culture until years later I traveled upon the red green show, which I'm fascinated by because it's such a, it's such a weird thing. (laughs) I remember hearing that you love the red green show. Fascinated. fascinated. Don't love fascinated. You don't love it. Not yet. I think more people are fascinated by it than love. And the fact that like he's still touring as that character, but going to like just little small towns that have little small theaters. I, it's just so just on one hand, wonderful that he can do that. Like, 
but it's just so it's so crazy to me. Well, I mean, uh, not to say that these two things are the same, but I feel like um, just the how America and Canada are structured very similar, and that there's a lot of empty space with small yeah. towns in it, uh, and then the big the big cities are on the coast or just like squeezed right in the middle of every little province yeah. or state. Um, there's going to be some like even in your own state, there'll be a lot of people who you just cannot connect with on a pop culture level so like i'm sure there may be so many people who just go buck wild for uh what's his face yeah the cable like, guy but you're not not on what's going on with area the cable guy you yeah know exactly it's yeah like red green the red green blue collar comedy stuff, thing yeah. totally um yeah. oh yeah actually jeff foxworthy was a really big comedic inspiration when i was a kid <laughs> well I had uh, all of the Jeff Foxworthy's albums. It was like before you Weird couldn't Al, escape, which was like, that you, if you might be a redneck thing. There was like five years yeah. in the '90s. I feel where you might be a redneck was like like the high the highest peak of comedy. I mean, some of those jokes are pretty, or funny or at still. least comedy marketing. Because like I remember having like a day, uh, you know, a tearaway a day page calendar of redneck jokes and stuff like that, like. Oh, yeah. I, I can barely remember any of them, but still. You mentioned Weird Al, and I know you host a show up there in Edmonton. So, oh, yeah. is yeah, Weird Al a big influence for you then? Um, yeah, I would say he's a big influence. Like, I don't know. I feel like if there's like, if everybody had to pick one comedy hero that just like they would want to meet slash never want to meet depending on what your perspective on like being mm-hmm. your heroes is um yeah i would say weird al is mine uh and i yeah i just remember when my friend introduced me to him it was just like just like a whole world mm-hmm. exploded my brain of just like i don't know what comedy could be for some reason even though it's like the most basic thing that every kid does is just do parodies right. of stuff there was just something about Weird Al that I don't know. I think it's just because he just takes the what's it's such a, a condensed version of just like taking something that is established and just shaking it, I guess, if that makes any sense, like rattling the cage or whatever the metaphor is like. Um, yeah, and I think that's why he captures a lot of people's imagination, especially when they're kids. But uh, just because it's just like you don't have to understand even what the original song is to find the song funny like i didn't know half of what the songs he was parodying for like you know a good 10 years before i actually learned them and actually the more you listen to uh, music as you get older uh a lot of it kind of ties back to weird al (laughs) which is kind of interesting and you just kind of it just gets recontextualized constantly the older you get. So it's actually a thing that ages surprisingly well in a way. Yeah. I can't remember what it was. Like that makes- there, there, there's a weird Al song on running with scissors. Like that. I hadn't heard the original, like, you know what he based the parody on. And then years later, I finally heard, it. I was like, Oh, weird Al, Awesome. Like it's, it's a, uh, yeah, he's, he's, he's awesome. So, so where do you fall? Do you fall on once I meet him, not meet him? Uh, I don't know. I've had the opportunity to meet him a couple of times just because I've gone to his shows and you can buy those VIP passes where you can meet him beforehand. And I'm just like, well, 
I don't want to spend the extra like two or three hundred dollars or whatever it costs, and then just to like have a weird, awkward okay, okay. meetup. Hypothetical. You get a dinner with Weird Al, yes or no? I mean, if somebody was a mutual friend and was like, "Hey, I want to set you guys up to have dinner together," I'd be okay. like, yeah, of course. But like a fan meetup yeah, thing, I, I, I totally I understand those. Not. Those aren't like the best place. Yeah, it's so awkward. Um, okay, so after this uh, show with your friends, um, that uh, your team, uh, damn dirty apes, is what you called yourselves. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it was based on the fact that the the Tim Burton remake came out that summer. <laughs> and, we, and we had a through line we had a through line throughout where charlton heston was like a, a character where he interviewed himself a lot of like charlton heston at the movies where he just interviews himself okay. about his own movies and everyone does a bad charlton heston impression it was awesome. <laughs> but uh yeah the damn dirty apes based on that remake everybody forgot so what's next after that for your comedy life. Uh, uh, I moved to Edmonton, went to uh, U of A for university, and I joined Rapid Fire to do improv. So I do improv. I've been doing improv there since, I think, 2003. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, and then I've been, yeah, did, did that. And then me and uh, my best friend who was in Damn Dirty Apes kind of just have, had been doing uh, sketch comedy videos. We just got into filmmaking so we would actually make films we made a couple of feature length films that yeah 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 and they they were screened in edmonton got into like one or two festivals and then just like died on a hard drive somewhere pretty Uh, much like Uh, yeah trailers for them on the internet but we had uh i we have a youtube channel called high wire films channel which has some sketches that we started uploading like 10 years ago so you may right, you say die on a hard drive, like I mean they, the, the hard drive still okay, works. That, that was that was the thing. Okay, <laughs> like yeah, no, I can I could put these movies out again if there was any demand. Were, for were it, they but. like comedies? Were they? Uh, yeah, we did a a very daring, um, two hour long film, which was uh, a feature length uh, rom com parody. Okay. So we did it before they came together and whatever that last one with Rebel Wilson that came out this last year is. Um, uh, yeah, so it was like a rom-com parody. It was inexplicably two hours long. It was like my first foray into anything film-related beyond just like experimenting with my home video camera when I was a kid. But uh, yeah, we just got like... I think they had a cast of like 150 people that we just got people doing favors and we filmed it over a year and a half. What? Yeah, and it, it was pretty much just funded with whatever money I had at at the time, which I guess was a lot of money. I had all my high school savings, and then I bought a expensive DV camera, which is a format that is uh, was very hip at the time, but now is super relevant. It's cr- like and uh, yeah, learned how to make uh, a movie, and I would never want anybody to see it now. A lot of the jokes have not aged well. <laughs> Oh, uh, goodness. Just imagine what you think is hilarious when you're like oh, 19 I, or 20. Oh, I, I totally understand. What you could get away with saying also as like a person back then as a, well, as a white man. Totally understand. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah. 
Yeah, I would not want this movie to ever be seen by anybody. We did sell copies, which I'm fearful of. So <laughs> if you have a copy, please don't cancel me. <laughs> and if you have a copy, please reach out to me because I do want to see it. Like, I'm now super curious. Uh, well, I, mean, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I probably have a digital copy of it somewhere <laughs> on a hard drive. That's uh, yeah. Nobody will ever see this. Movie. I, like. It was it's pretty good though. There's some good moments in it. When I watched I watched it a couple years ago just because we were curious and it was like, actually, some of this really holds up. Some of it's just like literally the ugliest thing ever put to film. So. <laughs> yeah, so it, it was legitimately just like, hey, I have a camera. Let's do it. Let's go. Yeah, well, we just wanted to make movies and then also we also had the youthful uh confidence, I guess, to think that whatever we made was great. So we went as far to submitting it to Sundance, submitting it to all the <laughs> film festivals. Spending just so much money, just throwing your money down the toilet because looking back, it's like, yeah, that would never get into that. <laughs> uh, and then uh, we also like forked over thousands of dollars to screen it locally at the movie theater and hope to make a bit of a profit on it. We just barely broke even. At least you broke even. I mean, yeah, it was like the theater guy, I think, charged 5,000 bucks or something like that. So it was a lot, a lot of money for us. But yeah, that is. But we were we were just like, it wasn't even like, this is a big risk. We're going to take it. It was just like, we didn't have any question that it would fail, which was a wild thing to think back back on, you know? We're just like, this is going to be so great. Yeah, we were just so confident in it. And then looking back, it's just like, well, at least I learned something about myself. Yeah. Um. So, uh, uh, like, it's so weird to think that, like, because I think you're just like two or three years older than I am, that we came up in right, like in a good time of people that want to be like filmmakers and, you know, do that kind of stuff where everything got so infinitely cheaper, like mm-hmm. the rise of digital video versus using film, <clears throat> um, you know, Final Cut Pro versus, you know, actual editing boards and reel to reels and stuff like that. Like, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I can't even fathom what it would have been like if I grew up, you know, if I had been born five, six years earlier. But then even like, even then, like, you know, of the early 2000s and whatnot, like all that stuff happening, fast forward another 10 years where I could theoretically shoot and edit a movie on my phone right now. Yeah. Like, and then put it up on Amazon Prime Video for the world oh, to see. Yeah. Like, it's it's just so so crazy how quickly that all has moved and like being born into the right generation but you know maybe a couple more years would have been a little bit better to wait but it's weird because it's easier than ever to make a movie now but as someone who's gotten older it almost seems harder because back then the technology was cheap and available and whatever but uh we also we had this boundless confidence, and we also didn't pay anybody anything, yeah. nor did we get paid ourselves. Right. Like it was all about making the thing, and then now it's just like I wouldn't do anything without paying somebody, right? Uh, because we're all adults and we all have to pay rent and stuff. Whereas back then it's like, yeah, rent was like what two hundred dollars Canadian <laughs> or something like that. Uh, so it's like it wasn't hard to scrape that together and then just like make a movie on the side. And even and even then, like once you make it and put it out there, there's just so many options and so many choices now. Like to even get like a foothold to make yeah. an impression on a digital audience is, you know, again, a crapshoot. It's just so 
like I was just scrolling through like Netflix and stuff the other day, and I'm just like, there's so many choices. How do how does anyone watch anything? Like, oh, I know it's like the whole video store thing all over again. I remember going to a video store when I was a kid, and you uh, just spend I don't know like half an hour to an hour maybe with your friends trying to decide on a movie. Yeah, you would like you uh, would grab a, a, a tape of something that you'd like. And then between the three of you, like you would boil it down to those like four or five that you that you gathered to yeah. get to the one that you'd watch that night. It almost seems like it's harder to pick a movie now for some it, reason. It's it's so hard. Like, yeah, and the stakes are lower. Like, you don't have to pay money. You don't have to travel there. You don't have to do any of the things I, to pick the thing. And then it still is, yeah, way harder for whatever reason. I think it's just the choice is just seems infinite that it's like. So intimidating. Yeah, at least Blockbuster, like it was a building that had a finite amount of space and a finite amount of shelving. Netflix, Hulu, YouTube, you know, all the the premium channels. Like there's just so much. Yeah, that was the thing. You just had the limited choices. So it lets you be, I guess, creative or whatever (laughs) that gives you gives you restrictions. Uh, All right. So filmmaking. uh, And I'm you're still working at. rapid fire throughout this entire time doing improv and everything how and rapid fire was also like great like casting resource absolutely we made movies with our with all of our improv buddies like all of our sketches that we put online are just like all of our absolutely like yeah you get hooked into improv theater you're gonna find actors that want to just be on film for little pay for sure or little pay zero pay (laughs) i was being slightly generous there (laughs) <laughs> now let's get the facts <laughs> they all, all oh i can be out. on camera cool good i'll be there <laughs> yeah um so what's uh, the next yeah. step like what's the next uh bridge the gap between doing this romantic comedy parody to how i know you get is from martin berry like what other projects are there in between um i mean we did we made three movies one of them is i would say very good the other two not great uh uh and we did a bunch of sketches online he went away to film school in the states and then i'm uh moving back and forth from edmonton to toronto working on various tv projects blah 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 and then um still when i'm back in edmonton with rapid fire there's a festival that they put on called the bonfire which is a uh, experimental improv festival basically just like pitch your dumb ideas mm-hmm. uh so for whatever reason sketch comedy was a, a was a dumb idea <laughs> which was i think maybe because it was like oh this is written and not improvised and that seemed novel right uh but we also had a very short time limit to like put together a sketch show so i think that the the novelty kind of was kind of born out of that just like oh we only have like two weeks to like put together a full hour so and the show is basically uh Whoever wants to sign up can sign up. Like it wasn't like I cast it or anything. Okay. But I was the one who pitched it, and then everybody kind of signed up. Uh, a couple people dropped out. Nikki, I think, was just put in the show. She was conscripted. Okay. And um, so, and then everybody just kind of wrote a bunch of stuff and did this bonfire show. And uh, it was a big success. I think there was like a sold out crowd that night for whatever reason. There's another show on the double bill that was also like exciting. So it was a great first show. And then a couple months later, Nikki 
was like, hey, that sketch thing was fun. Let's maybe do a a group. And then so we started meeting and putting together uh, sketches and then started doing shows. And I think we really became a group when we got into the Vancouver Sketch Comedy Festival, which I don't think exists anymore. But it was our first festival, like like less than a year after existing. Okay. Or being less than a year after being born. So, um, yeah. And then after that, I think we just kind of really stuck to it. Yeah. So tell me, I mean, I know Marvin Barry pretty well, I think, um, uh, from sticking you guys in my parents' house for a few days and, and <laughs> hanging out with you guys nice <laughs> the uh, the entire time. I know you guys pretty well. But tell me about Marvin Barry. Tell the listeners about Marvin Barry. Like, how would you describe a, Mar- a Marvin Barry show? Um, a Marvin Berry show. I mean, we don't strive to do anything too, uh, outlandish in terms of like shaking the core of what your, uh, perception of what sketch comedy is. Uh, we just try and do just very solid sketches, very basic kind of, um, yeah, just, we try, we we don't try and, you know, overload anything with props. Like we never really have props. Uh, it's all very simple, very basic. There is kind of, because we all came from improv, we also like, there's kind of a improv element to it. Mm-hmm. So sometimes we'll have some audience participation stuff, but it's still pretty structured. Like we don't really go too much off of the script. Right. Um, with few exceptions where it's just like the whole point is that we just kind of do that. But every time we've tried to do something that's like, we're just going to like do improv within this very loose sketch guideline it never really like goes as well as we think it will right you you have a full roadmap you have a full start and destination but you might take a side street instead of going down the main thoroughfare sometimes and then also if you just know a joke isn't working it's just like sometimes if you have the opportunity to do a show and you know a joke isn't working and then just trying something different or just trying to add a joke which is i think uh always uh the most daring thing to do in a sketch because it's just like even if it's that thing's not working you're like might upset the rhythm mm-hmm. by trying to throw in an extra gag or trying to like do a gag and then build off of that gag and stuff and then it's just like well what's the sketch even about anyway right. so absolutely so we do we do do it in some improv stuff a lot of stuff feels really loosey-goosey in terms of just like the dialogue, but it's all written. I think it's just, we just kind of approach it with like an improv performance style, which I think is very valuable. Mm. Uh, so it feels more conversational, even though it's not. Uh, so coming together for, you know, writing a show in a short amount of time with improvisers, how did writing for Marvin Berry feel compared to your previous projects? Uh, you know, interesting. I mean, this is extremely collaborative and generally there's like no egos. So this really just feels like we can all just pitch stuff and write stuff and everybody's looking out for the show and not looking out for themselves. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I mean, it's always, it's easy to say that, but then, you know, there's sometimes where even myself will just be like, really want your sketch to succeed or to be picked and stuff by everybody else. Yeah. Things, but people gravitate to certain things because it works. So I think generally the show is the priority, and everybody realizes that. If I watched, so uh, if I watched the Marvin Berry that- show, is there a specific hallmark where I could be able to like? If I saw everything that you guys have ever done, 
is there a hallmark of your work where I'd be like, oh, that's definitely a Mike idea? I feel like definitely. I think this sketch that we read actually is a good, uh, good kind of tie into all of that because the the just hearing it performed was just like, oh, there's this sketch is just way too long. <laughs> there's uh, and uh, the thing is, there's way too much research being done to the point where it's just like you're so charmed by the research that you forget to make this sketch funny <laughs> or you think that the research is funny, I guess, because it's like, can you believe that these babies are saying, right. this? like, so anyway, like that whole thing, I feel like my hallmark is just, uh, I wouldn't say more cerebral sketches or more heady sketches, but I think that whatever this sketch is classified as, is you can kind of find a through line where I might do something a little bit more absurd where the, I think it's hilarious, but nobody in the group gets it or likes it. I think likes it is probably the word. <laughs> um, so, so if there's a sketch, but yeah, so, you drop a, a science fact, I know it's yours. Like, like some obscure, like bit of knowledge that you've researched. Yeah. I, I, I've, I, I kind of am the, I don't know that any of us are pr- particularly pretentious, but I feel like, I feel like if, somebody had to be the pretentious one in the group. I might be that one. I don't know. I I often will monologize about just like high hanging fruit and low hanging fruit and how important the high hanging fruit is where you just like, yeah, sure. You can have a poo joke in there, but then you got to have the obscure, you know, reference to like the, I don't know, Andre Tarkovsky film or whatever in there. So that the one person who laughs at that will be your fan forever. You know, <laughs> Which is like, I think a sound, uh, a sound theory, but also it's not, doesn't necessarily make a great show always. So yeah, I'm trying to remember not to say that I'm bad at writing, (laughs) but you know, it's just like, I I kind of, that's one of my uh, tendencies is just like, oh, this is, this is a clever sketch. So I tried to, I'm trying to just like not be so clever. Right. Because sometimes clever isn't as clever as you think it is, right? So yeah, it's just almost more clever to just be simple and to the point. Yeah, like, and not hide the joke. I, I that's that was the big thing about hiding the joke. Uh, whatever, I, I think it was the a documentary about the Danny Carvey show, where Robert Smigel was like, "Don't hide the joke. Just if if that's the joke of the, of the thing, put it right there out in front. Like, let's do it. Like, let them yeah. know what they're and supposed to be laughing at." How much- yeah, you'd be surprised by how, uh, by how much better the sketches are if the joke is right there and everybody can tell what it is. Yeah, that's why like SNL does intros. Like Debbie Downer had a sitcom intro every time she came on, because so that yeah. you knew what what this character was. Exactly. Yeah, I mean this baby sketch. Uh, the joke is apparent right there. I don't know that it's super clear, but I think it's a good. It's fine because it's like the, literally the first sketch I ever wrote where it's just like, oh, it's just a bunch of babies, and wouldn't it be hilarious if they talked yeah. about smart things that they had no concept of? Uh, so um, let's, all right, so we talked about Weird Al. So let, and we, we mentioned already that you host the show Weird Al Karaoke. Let's talk about that. Where, that's where right. does this start? Like, how do you get started doing this Weird Al Karaoke show? Um, well, Weird Al Karaoke is not my idea. Uh-oh. Uh, it was founded in Toronto by a man named Glenn McCauley. He's a very funny guy. He They actually had a thing called the Festival of New Formats in Toronto, which is pretty much the Bonfire Festival, but it was more for, I think, more multidisciplinary comedy, not so much improv. Sure. Um, 
So he basically came up with an idea of Weird Al Karaoke where everybody gets to do write their own parodies. And then it's just like karaoke rules still kind of apply in terms of the lyrics are uh, available for you to look at whenever. So you don't have to memorize it. And you just use karaoke tracks. And there's kind of an informal kind of bar quality to the whole thing. Like the vibe is real chill. Mm So I think that really works for it because people think that the stakes are really high when you're doing a parody because if you're performing a parody that you wrote for the first time, you're just so so nervous about it. But it's just like, well, no. If it feels like karaoke, then it doesn't matter. And therefore, you can be more comfortable and the audience will get into it a lot right. easier. So. Um, so anyway, that's what kind of Weird Al Karaoke is. So my friend Claire, who's a very good stand-up comedian, she moved to Toronto recently, but she had done weird out karaoke in vancouver because they went from toronto the uh, another one in vancouver started and then she was like we should start it in edmonton so now it's kind of like a thing that's happening all over mm. i know that it happened there's so there's one in edmonton there's one in toronto there's one in vancouver that happens occasionally and then uh there was i think they did it in winnipeg for a while <clears throat> it may have done it in regina i can't confirm that I know that they had at least one in Atlanta and at least one in LA. Hmm. So it's like an idea that's slowly springing up. And it's like, I mean, it's, it makes perfect sense. Just like get people to do song parodies, just like Absolutely. everybody gets that. Absolutely. So yeah, it's, it's good. And the one in, that we do in Edmonton is amazing. Sometimes I'm just like, these are better than <laughs> like song for song, better than a Weird Al album. Hmm. Which is a daring thing to say. But yeah, it is. A lot of the time the quality is just very high. Uh, and then, like you mentioned, like keeping the stakes low, but like having high quality of of the you know the performers and their work going. It like, how do you find that uh, relationship helps you? Well, I mean, in that show, or even in sketch comedy, uh, or even in improv, even it's just like anytime you're doing something comedy wise, I feel like if you can be more relaxed, it's always better. Uh, just because you can be more yourself, you can kind of channel your voice with greater ease than throttling it through some like, you know, well of nerves. Mm. Um, so th- I think that's a a big thing. Uh, th- this is a question I, I want I, I want to start asking people that have been doing it for a while. Uh, I'm I'm totally ripping this this question from another podcast. So apologies, a good one. Uh. Is there a sketch that you've written that you still think is funny, but has never hasn't really done as well on stage when you performed it? Ooh, um, I mean, I feel like that literally describes every one of my sketches, <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is haha, self-deprecating. But no, there is a um, I don't know. There's a sketch that I really like that we've done a couple times and may, I think maybe we're directing it wrong or we're performing it wrong or it's just too long or I don't know what it is. There's just something about it. Cause uh, it's like a doctor sketch. Mm-hmm. This guy comes in and the doctor says that he's dying of like a, a boat crash and it's all just like future. Like basically the symptoms are just things to look out for when you're about to get into a boat crash. If that makes okay. sense like things to look out for are being in a boat, the boat crashing, and then you flying through the air. Okay. Like that's symptoms. So it's just like the, the overlap of doctor and 
I guess, future stuff. Um, and that sketch, I think, is very well written, but for whatever reason, it just doesn't connect with the audience. And I'm not sure if it's a performance thing or if it's just thinks it's too clever or if there's like, or if the joke of the sketch isn't obvious, but it seems obvious right. to me. So. Right, right, right. But I will never abandon that one. I'm, I'm going to try and tinker with it again. <laughs> yeah, I was trying to th- take it back to the lab. I was trying to think if I had seen that one or not. I don't think I have. No, you definitely haven't. Yeah. Uh, we've only done it in Edmonton a few times. And it like It's gotten like, okay, to the point where some people are like, we got to cut that one. It's bad. But then it's like, well, I got a couple of laps here. Might might still be good. Might still be good. Yeah, that's one of those things that like when I got back into doing comedy after taking like a year or two off, like like I was like, how much of my old material can I go back and mine to either redo or repurpose? Or so I asked a couple of the guys here in Philadelphia. I was like, that have been doing it for a while. Like, all right, my own sketches that I did years ago. Am I allowed to play with them again? They're like, oh, absolutely, go for it. Like, no one cares. We're not paying attention. Yeah. It's like, oh, cool. Great. Yeah. I did a sketch comedy workshop recently uh, where the the person running it basically was like, yeah, if you've got sketches that don't work, just keep on working on them until they work. Yeah. And that was like the the end of that advice. No, it's just like, yeah, it's true. <laughs> I would say if you have a, a hard-hitting Elian Gonzalez sketch, <laughs> maybe don't do it anymore. I'm sh- but you never know. I'm sure you can just update the reference. I'm sure there's someone something else that fits in there, like to you know bring it up to 2020. Yeah, people aren't talking about Cuba anymore. No, but there's got to be something else. There's got to be something. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. Anyway, go on. Sorry. Uh, um. So, like, I mean, as we're wrapping up, and I, I have I missed any major, like, other sketch work that you've done. I mean, I know there's like, you're a like you've done a bunch of like directing and editing for sketch comedy in Edmonton and helping other teams do that, that kind of stuff. Like are there other things I've Um, like other big major projects that I've missed out on? I mean, I kind of skipped over a bunch of stuff. Uh, Like when I was about 10 years ago, I was fortunate enough to be asked through a series of connections uh, to direct a, sketch comedy TV show, um, which aired on a now dead Canadian TV network oh, wow. called Byte TV. We did a show. There was just a bunch of sketches. We all just had a bunch of people submit stuff. We wrote a bunch of stuff, me and my friend. Um, and um, it was called E-Town. E-Town. Yeah. And some of the sketches still, I think, live on the internet. And they're thankfully the uh, a better of them and be least offensive of them which thankfully i didn't write the really offensive ones but there's some i was just like "Ooh, if this came out now we would we would not have a career kind of thing but i feel like that Um, by tv like from what i know of some of the stuff that was on it like that was more of like an, an edgier channel for the most part wasn't it how did you how the heck do you know about this tv network because like uh like i'm that much of a comedy dork that like when stuff gets you know imported up to you or exported up to you actually like or coming down like i i've learned like the different names like of different things okay yeah well uh yeah uh, yeah it was kind of like a rebranded because originally bite tv was like the canadian spike tv right exactly that's what i was thinking like 
Yeah, they rebranded it as a comedy show, which was mostly reruns, but they had some original like, content. I, I feel so. I, there's a part of me that wants to say, like, Kenny versus Spenny. Did that... Uh, was that a bite thing? No, or was I, think, that... I can't remember. I think that was through CBC or... No, that was through the Comedy okay. Network. Comedy Network actually had some... A, a run of some really amazing stuff, like Kenny versus Spenny, I think, was on there. And then... But Tom Green also was extremely formative to me in high school. Hmm. Uh, him being Canadian, him kind of just, like, grappling with digital video and making like yeah. stuff and then his just completely insane sense of humor was just so appealing at yeah. the time i still stand by freddie got fingered as being like a piece of art <laughs> a lot of people think it's just terrible but it's like if you're like well look at it as if it's like a series of performance art pieces you know <laughs> it doesn't make sense as a regular movie similar to how the new movie cats is like if you go in thinking that it has a story then no, you're going to hate it. But if you go in acknowledging that it's just an hour and a half of people introducing themselves and these people are cats, then then it's genius. But like the, the thing with cats, and I, I haven't seen it yet. I, I, Ooh, we're going to talk about cats. I'm very excited. I, I, like, the thing with cats, and I'm, I think I'm going to go see it tomorrow. Because I, oh, I think it, I think it leaves the theaters like majorly here in Philadelphia tomorrow. Or at least the theaters I'm going to oh. go to. Like It might still be a couple of like, the bigger multiplexes. I'm jealous of you that you haven't seen it. <laughs> but like and you get to see it for the first time. The the idea that that Cats was like the biggest Broadway musical almost ever for at least a long period of time. How does it not not make sense? I like it's weird. I, I, I can't walk into that like thinking it's just this weird performance art piece when I know that this has such a pedigree of of everything. But the the music is awesome. Like there's after you see it, you're gonna have so many of those songs stuck in your head if you haven't seen the the live thing already. I've never seen it live. But no. then also Yeah, but so the music is great. So it's legit, but it is just a plotless mess. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just kind of like nonsense and just like people's weirdest instincts are just given just full they're just like able to go full out on it and it's uh like the whole movie really makes sense when you see when Ian McKellen comes into the film <laughs> because he is so committed and it's uh but it's like he gets what he's doing and if for whatever reason you just think it's terrible, then it's just like you don't get what you're watching, man. You just don't get cats, man. <laughs> and I've never seen Freddy Got Fingered, so now I'm curious about doing a cats Freddy Got Fingered like oh, double bill. That's a that's a great double feature. That's awesome, actually. <laughs> yeah, you should watch. I'm jealous you've never seen Freddy Got Fingered. Freddy, uh, Freddy Got Fingered. Freddy Got Fingered. That's a uh, uh, definitely a polarizing film and hard to watch at times. But if you're like, if you're in it, if you have any appreciation for Tom Green, then the movie is brilliant. But if you don't like Tom Green, then you're not going to like it. <laughs> so it's not for everyone. Clearly it's called Freddie got fingered. Yeah. Um, you mentioned going to that seminar earlier and that, you know, the guy saying, or, you know, the person saying, you know, no skirt sketch is ever dead. Like you can always tinker with it and play with it. Uh, what's a piece of advice that you would give to a new a new writer? I, I would steal that advice. I think that's good advice. But uh, I also think that my thing about the high 
fruit low fruit is also like i still believe in it even though it rarely pays off but you know sometimes people come up to you after show and just like that one joke just killed me and it's the joke that you like the most and nobody else laughs at right so you know that yeah it's like that's how you like kind of get some hardcore fans is if you can like appeal to just some weirdo in the back of the audience so that's another piece of advice that i already kind of mentioned i but i do stand by that i think um I also think uh, just kind of like not worrying about things too much and just kind of not, yeah, just don't stress the details too much. Just kind of like get it on the page and then just got to don't let it die on the first draft. Like just, you know, you do something and it doesn't work, figure out why it doesn't work and then just keep tinkering with it. Like, um, I've been reading a lot of like writing books recently uh, or books about the the art of writing. And um, yeah, a big thing that kind of comes up a lot is just like writing is not writing. It's rewriting. Yeah. So I think that definitely applies to sketch comedy because sometimes you don't even know what the joke you're making is until. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. And then also one last piece uh, that really ties into the sketch that we read today was uh, usually you can scrap the first third <laughs> or maybe even the first page. And it's like the sketch kind of begins on page two. I think that might even be like an old standby of some sort of writing uh, advice, but it's just like, that's hundred percent true for that sketch. It's like, <laughs> Oh, it didn't really start until like page two and a half. Really. It's just like one joke that wasn't funny for a, a page and a half. And then it kind of got into what was actually interesting. Yeah, I remember that happening to me, like the first show that I did after my time away, like I, you know, we had a director and I, you know, submit the sketch. He's like, yeah, this is great. You don't need any of this, though. Like we can start here halfway through page two, like just get right into it. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. One thing that's interesting about these writing uh, books I've been reading uh, is um, and trying to and I'm just thinking about sketch comedy while I'm doing it. I'm not reading it for sketch comedy. It's more for film writing stuff, but um, like subtext isn't really a, a thing in sketch comedy as much. Everything has to kind of just be like right there because it's going to end soon. So yeah, there's no time to play in subtext very much. No, which is, which is kind of interesting because in other forms of writing, it's like you need to have so many background details, but you don't need to say them all. And all that. Whereas sketch comedy is like, nope, just get it out there and then it's over. It's kind of a good metaphor for life, you know? Just make sure you tell everybody you love one because you're going to die one Jeez. day. <laughs> get it all out there because the sketch is over soon. <laughs> oh, goodness. Or something. I don't know. It's, maybe it's not so cosmic. <laughs> maybe it's not. There's, maybe there's no parallels between sketch and life. I don't know. No, there are, but you just made it a downer. <laughs> <laughs> or inspiring (laughs) and then uh finally uh i mean you talked about doing like film work and everything so why why sketch comedy why is improv like really hooked you in like since you were a high schooler uh that's an interesting question i wonder i wonder how much of it has to do with just like my uh just the all the time i had alone when i was in high school like my parents were both working for like an hour or two after i got off school so i'd have a couple of hours to watch the simpsons and monty python whatever was on tv after school and stuff so i wonder if that stuff just like kind of just really got a hold Mm -hmm. of me 
and I wonder what would happen if we didn't have a television. What I would, what do I, oh, and there wasn't an improv team in my high school. Because the only reason I joined the improv team was uh, this guy who was on the improv team came to a party at my house that my sister is like her birthday party. And then uh, when I made a joke just when I was walking by about something, and then he was just like, you should join the improv team or something. And I was like, what's improv? And then he told me to, and then he told me about their auditions that they were having. And then I had an audition and then I got on the team. So it was like this real, like falling ass backward into something. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I, yeah, I guess I don't know if I've answered your question at all. I also just wonder, yeah, if this is something that I would have even gotten into or if something, uh, or if I would have just been a completely different person, like if I would have just been playing hockey or something, because I was really into hockey when I was in a teen, before before drama took a hold. Uh, yeah, and then all of a sudden, that's the only interesting thing in my life, and hockey is boring. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Like does, that doesn't answer your question at all, does it? Um, I don't. I don't know. It's just it's interesting to think of like. The, the stupid little things that, you know, you know, watching TV after school becomes such a, like, cause that's, I'm the same way. Like I was a latchkey kid. My parents, you know, I had two hours by myself basically before I didn't, like my parents came home from work too. Like, wow. and it was all the comedies that were on syndicated after, you know, three to five, like that was my yeah. world. So yeah, I'm, I, I think, Going back to that time of, you know, the teen year, the teen years of, you know, all that, that totally makes sense. And also, like, I worked at a video store when I was in high school. I wonder if, like, I only got into movies because I just happened to see that one movie that I connected to on some right. level. And I was just like, this is cinema, yeah. you know? Like, uh, I don't even remember what it would have been, but. It was probably something Tarantino probably, or. Yeah. Yeah, it might have been like a Tarantino movie for all I know. Like, I don't know Tarantino now, but back then I probably would have saw Pulp Fiction. And was just like, oh my god, this is like what a movie right. could be. And you, everything you know is kind of turned upside down. And then you're like, I have to do yeah. this. Yeah, but I don't even know what that movie would have been because I just probably saw so many movies back then. Yeah, it's probably Pulp Fiction. It might have been Pulp Fiction. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that movie still. Holds <laughs> I'm trying up. to think of like all those big like uh cult movies of the mid to late 90s that you would have seen in a, in a movie theater i mean in a movie you know re- store i mean back then i was more into forrest gump than i was into pulp fiction i mean that could have been one too which that's yeah which that seemed that was a good movie back then now you watch it and it's just like oh this movie doesn't make make any <laughs> sense or what thought it was oh this is this is weird and just why why is this happening to him like i, I well there's another there's another podcast that said he's the most passive protagonist in the history of the world like he just randomly shows up things and stuff happens to him yeah but i think that forrest gump is i mean not that i don't know if you want to get into forrest gump but i do think forrest gump is fascinating because it is this movie that is so acclaimed for what it for what it is uh but I think the reason people connect to it so much is because of the soundtrack. Yeah. 
like the nostalgia clouds the actual message of the film for sure which is just that if you're like an idiot from the south you can fail upwards <laughs> it's like very it's very relevant now <laughs> um, you don't have to be smart to be the president of the united states for example so or even the premier of alberta <laughs> so so yeah this is like Forrest Gump is very relevant now, but also it's just like people don't remember all how like actually depressing that film is. Everybody just remembers. Oh yeah. It had, you know, great soundtrack, Creedence Clearwater and et cetera, et cetera. And Bubba Gump shrimp company in times square. Yeah. Yeah, You you forget that his, the love of his life was abused as a child and died of AIDS. Yes. (laughs) It's an extremely depressing film, but the music is so good (laughs) and it reminds me of what I was All right. Thanks, Mike. Mike and the rest of Marvin Berry are heading to SF Sketchfest to perform two shows at Piano Fight on January 23rd at 7 p.m. and 9 p.m. Head to sfsketchfest.com for ticket information. And then go to marvandberry.com and follow them on all the social media channels. My First Sketch is a Philly Sketchfest production. You can find out more information at phillysketchfest.com. Follow Philly Sketchfest on Instagram at phillysketchfest. The music on this episode is by the band Nono, which you can check out at nonoband.bandcamp.com. Like My First Sketch on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter. Rate, review, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is Josh Hyam. Thanks for listening. Go see some comedy.